If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Tijden heen, dachten heen. They tried to colonize us, tried to genocide us, yet we're still here with the tongue unbroken. We're back, baby. Season two? Yet we're still here with the tongue unbroken. I am so thankful, folks, that this is flowing into your ears. It's like a little mini miracle in this decolonization effort. I think that the minds and the hearts at iHeart all got together and said, you know what? We got to keep decolonizing folks. So my name is Rene Lance Twitchell. Uh, I live on Akkwan Ani and Shingit Ani, also known on the maps as Juneau, Alaska in Southeast Alaska. The Shingit country extends into Canada. It did before and it does now. Somebody drew a border over our land. So, Wasaway, a dakka shingit. What's up to the inland shingit peoples? What's up to everybody? It has been a long year and a little bit more since the season one ended. And I'm so thankful to everybody who was on there. And one of the things we got to do right up front, we got to give a big acknowledgement, send so much love. To the family and friends of our dear and departed Dr. Saul Neely. Saul was the first guest on the tongue unbroken that I was not related to. My children were the first ones I ever interviewed. Uh, behind the scenes, it was uh, the the interview with the kids was wild. They they were just going bonkers. It, it just wasn't working. They wouldn't answer questions. They were laughing and bonking the microphone. Uh, and it was a snowy day here. Uh, uh my partner, my love, Mariah, she she helped. She stepped in. She said, okay, I'll take the kids outside. We'll play in the snow. Send them in one at a time. Genius move. Uh, so they were the first that I interviewed. And then the first that I interviewed outside of them was Saul Neely, who tragically, tragically passed away uh, in October of 2022. So we've been trying to figure out how does this world spin without such a brilliant beautiful mind and such a wonderful kind and funny human being he was so much fun to be with he was my partner in justice and my co-conspirator in decolonizing but you know we keep going we keep this thing moving we got a lot to talk about in season two so we're going to bring you about 16 different episodes every single week uh and we welcome your feedback, your thoughts, your 
you know, your hopes, your dreams in terms of what could you think of in a world that is something different than a colonized space that just murders indigenous languages. We are all about language reclamation movements. We are all about indigenous empowerment and the beauty that is our people, our ancestors, our current generations, our future generations. And we're going to kick it off with a great conversation uh, that I recorded in Flagstaff, Arizona, as we attended the Stabilizing Indigenous Languages Symposium at Northern Arizona University. In the summer of 2023, there were some folks from the Ojibwe Nations, from Hawaii, from Tlingit, and we got together and we, we talked about a plan. And part of our plan was thinking about a national Native American Language Resource Center, which is happening. That is coming through a partnership between those three entities, uh, Hawaiian folks, uh, Ojibwe folks, uh, Anishinaabe, and Shinket uh, peoples. And so the University of Alaska Southeast, where I work, we also represent Hutkil, the Haida language, and Tsimalgech, the Simshian language. Uh, so we are all partnering to figure out how we can better deliver plans, resources, ideas, support for indigenous languages throughout the United States of America. We got lots of love for our folks up in Canada. We know y'all been through it up there. Like, different name, same game, as far as colonization goes. So we are united in our efforts to bring our languages back to places of safety and prestige. These languages are this is the highest form of intellectualism in the country. And so many people don't know, don't have access, haven't looked at it, haven't thought about it. But it's not all your fault. I was just talking today. Yeah, I learned a lot more about a single pilgrim than I did about my own people going to school on our own lands. And so as we think about what can be education, as we think about what can be the United States of America and Canada in these decolonized states, let's listen to a conversation uh, that I was fortunate to have with the beautiful and brilliant couple Kawanoi Kamana and Pila, Dr. William Wilson. I convinced them to record an episode with me. They were my teachers when I was getting a PhD at Kahaka Ula Oke'ilikilani, the College of Hawaiian Language at the University of Hawaii at Hilo, where they both work and teach. Uh, Kawanoi uh, works at the Navahi School, which is a language medium school in Hawaii, uh, just outside of Hilo. And so we spent the day just talking about a number of different things. I just love to listen to them talk. And I'm so glad to bring this to you. Season two is a go. Light is green. The waters are calm. We're starting to paddle. I don't know why there's a green light on the water, but it's a buoy. There's a green one on the left and a red one on the right, if I remember right. Anyways, let's go. So glad you're here. Yichsechan. Yichsechan. Kusechan tin yejik oneyat adan. I love you all. I'm working on this with love. It's Pila. Kawanoi. Gunachish. Mahalo. Gunachish to cut you hon. Kunachoyach tu yak e. Hachedi saachi yayaki. Welcome to The Tongue Unbroken, a podcast about language revitalization and decolonization in North America. And we have with us today two absolute powerhouse people who have changed the landscape and been part of an incredible movement in Hawaii uh, for the Hawaiian language, making contributions, creating systems, creating institutions, standing up to things that are in their way and just moving them out so that their children, their keiki, their people can live with their language. So we are joined by Drs. Kawanoi Kamana and Dr. William Pila Wilson from the Ahapunanaleo and the University of Hawaii at Hilo and Navahi Medium Language School. And uh, we'll just start with introductions. So I was just wondering... Who are you so that the folks can get to know you? And how did you get started in the Hawaiian language? Aloha kaua e khani. Mahalo nui loa no kia kona ana mai yau. A me pila no kia kama ilio ana no keola o ka olelo Hawaii. Mahalo nui yau oi. 
Uh, I'm Kawanoi Kamana, and I am a parent of two children who were raised at home uh, in the Hawaiian language and also who attended uh, the Punanaleo, our Hawaiian language language nest in Hawaii, and Kekula Onavahi Okleni Opu'u, our Hawaiian language medium school in Keao on the big island of Hawaii. So I'm involved in language revitalization because uh, way back when we started the Punanaleo, the Aha Punanaleo, in 1983, we recognized that there were uh, dwindling numbers of native speakers at the time and less than 50 children under 18 who were speakers of Hawaiian. So we're really concerned uh, and we wanted to do something about it. We didn't really know what that would be, but we came to uh, meet some people who were uh, driven by the same worry about our language um, surviving, living, and thriving from New Zealand. And, um, and uh, he said, uh, this person that we know uh, from New Zealand said, uh, you know, what we're going to do is just going to put our babies together with our old people and have them be together uh, all day. Uh, Tamati uh, Reedy, Tamati Reedy, Dr. Tamati Reedy. And we thought, whoa, that sounds like something we could do, you know? Just put our young people, our babies together with our um, elders, our older speakers, and have them speak Hawaiian all day. Of course, people were saying, well, what is that? Is that a school or is that a daycare or nursery of some sort? We thought, well, we're not thinking about what we're going to call it, just that we wanted to take action and make sure that uh, those speakers were making direct contact with those babies and spending hours every day using our language. So uh, we were just trying to reverse the negative impact of the overthrow of our government in 1893 uh, by bringing our language back. And uh, it's been sleeping. I mean, it was sleeping for over 100 years, and we thought, we had language in the university system in the past, but that wasn't bringing our language back to the children as ch children speaking our language. So we thought we'd just try it and do whatever we could to um, try and reverse that negative history that we had. Mahalo. And we're also joined by Dr. William Pila Wilson. And if you can introduce yourself and then we'll get to the Aha Punana Leo and how it started and how it's interconnected to all these other parts of the language movement. Mahalo nui, ehene, aloha nui, kaua, amekapoe, holoe, mayana. To everyone who's listening, this is really a great honor to be able to speak to Hene and his work that he's spreading information about language revitalization around the world. Uh, so I've been asked to introduce myself. My name is William H. Wilson. Uh, I'm not native Hawaiian. I was born in Hawaii. Uh, my parents moved to Hawaii during World War II part of the war, and um, so I was born in Hawaii, and then when I was 10 years old, my father decided to move us to live in Europe. We work, he was creating a business there, and that's how I got interested in the Hawaiian language, because in Europe, people speak all these languages, and they say, where are you from? And we children said, oh, we're from Hawaii, and so they'd say, what language do you speak? And Hawaii is kind of a famous place in that it does have a, an identity that's deeply rooted in the native Hawaiian language culture, but nobody really spoke it except for old people, and, um, and native Hawaiians were a, a significant minority in Hawaii, but they were not the majority. And so I thought, how come I don't know the Hawaiian language? And that was something that kind of... Um, stirred within me, and we kept moving different places, and I kept learning more languages. And then we came back to Hawaii when I was a senior in high school. I started going to night school as kind of a hobby. And uh, as Kaunoi mentioned, Hawaiian was offered at the university, but it was not a very uh, strong course. And so I enrolled and while I was um, trying to major in biology, uh, and so I met Kawanoi through going to those classes, and we kind of became close and came to this idea that maybe we would try to do something about the loss of the Hawaiian language. So that's basically, in a nutshell, how I got involved. 
the problem that we had is how do we actually learn Hawaiian? And then after we learn it, what do we do about spreading it? Because as Kaunai said, the university was not that successful. We actually had four years of Hawaiian, and my last semester, fourth year, we got a new teacher. And he's a language revitalization. He was a young person like Kimura. And I think he was the first um, second language speaker who really learned to speak Hawaiian. He's Hawaiian. His grandparents, even his mother, could speak Hawaiian. But he didn't grow up speaking Hawaiian. And then he taught himself by interacting with elders. So when he came to our class, he played a tape of someone actually speaking Hawaiian. And none of us, our little class of four students, couldn't understand a word. And we had uh, been reading it. It's written, there's a lot of written Hawaiian. And we had a certain book that had Hawaiian on one side and English on another, Hawaiian literature. So we read it and sort of translate it before Larry came, and he expected us to actually be able to understand and speak it. It was a different, it was kind of taught like Latin, I guess. So um, one of the things that Larry did was he started this Hawaiian language radio talk show with elders, and Kawanoi and I both helped Larry with that program, and that's how we started getting fluent with Hawaiian. And it's cheese. Uh, I was in Fairbanks, uh, and this was before I met you wonderful folks, and I had a couple of friends. Well, one was a teacher, and she was British, and so she she's had a British accent. She was uh, from England, uh, and then when she would talk to her children, she would talk to them in French. And I asked her one time, I said, I thought you are from England. Why do you speak French? And she said, well, my mother was French, and so I grew up in England, but my mother was French, and I always spoke to her in French, and she spoke to me in French. And so to keep my memory of her alive, I only, I only speak to my children in French. And I was really interested in that. We had another friend who was from Uruguay and did the same thing with Spanish with her child. So as my wife and I were talking about having children, I said, what if we did like a one-parent, one-language model where I spoke only in Tlingit, and you could speak in English, and then we would raise kids that would know the Tlingit language, because that went, we went 60 years without having that. But you folks were two parents, one language, and raised children in Hawaiian, uh, which hadn't been happening outside of Ni'ihau, a small island uh, that had an unbroken chain of language, but outside of that, uh, children weren't being raised with the language. And I think this helped, perhaps, give birth to the Aha Punano Leo as an idea, which turned into a movement. So could you talk about that? Well, I think um, in my childhood, both my parents were born in 1911. My father uh, was pure Hawaiian and my mother had a, a quarter of English. And so they both spoke to me in English. And so, and that's how it really was because English was the language, you know, to use. So, um, they used a lot of words with my family, my aunties and uncles, words, phrases in Hawaiian. So I was raised that way with all of my cousins. And and so in growing up and actually meeting um, Larry Pila and going to the university, we were learning language as a second language, our Hawaiian language as a second language. And so um, in the course of time and meeting uh, these native speakers, we and then felt the urgency that I mentioned before that we needed to do something about it. and But both Pila and I realized that we had to begin speaking ourselves because we were second language learners, you know? And those native speakers were very, very positive and encouraging all the time. You know, we would, of course, have formal sessions. We'd have the radio show and everything, but then we'd get together and have parties and eat and laugh and sing. So um, we were involved in... Uh, language in that way at that time. So we decided, well, we have to get a head start, you know, before we have our children. And that was a challenge, you know, to actually um, discipline yourselves to use only Hawaiian at that time. And it took some time and some patience, perseverance, you know, and um, we managed to do that. So when we had our son, Hulilao, at the time, uh, we were relatively ready to just be using Hawaiian between the two of us. And um, nobody else was doing that outside of the 
Niihau um, island community that uh, is known for using Hawaiian exclusively uh, in the families, Niihau families. So outside of that um, context, people were not using Hawaiian uh, in the way that we were doing it at home. And so um, it was important that we do that uh, in our own family because we have to start with ourselves. You know, if we think it's something important, we can't tell other people it's important and we're not practicing the language in a real way, you know, a real way. It wasn't a theory or anything. It was something we're actually doing and struggling with it, you know. And so if you struggle through something, you become quite knowledgeable about about how to overcome um, difficult things. And then also you experience the joy of, of seeing and hearing uh, the language come through your children, you know, the baby. So, um, so as our son was um, getting older, you know, as an infant and, and beginning to actually say some words and we're recording everything because we were excited about that too, uh, we thought, well, now this child is going to grow up and get ready to go to school. So we decided, well, you can, and, and we also knew because we knew how other a second people who were speaking other languages were using language at home. They could speak to their parents in the language, the language would speak, uh, the parents would speak to them in the language, but then they'd go with their friends and then they'd use English. So their friends would be using English and eventually they would just be using English. So we had to come up with a way to have Hawaiian-speaking friends for our children. So we're with people who are using language. We're teaching language at the time, attending university at the time, and and found a connection with a small group of people. Larry Kimura was one. Ilei Benyamina from the Ni'ihau community. Pila, myself. Hokulani Cleland. Those were the key people and some other of our friends who were... uh, seeing the same vision, you know, as we had and uh, decided, that's how we decided that we would create what we call now the Ahapunana Leo and, and then coming in co- contact with Dr. Um, Tamati Reedy. So we incorporated and said, well, okay, we need to make a business. We didn't know anything about preschools. That was kind of just a detail, you know. Um, and um, I mean, long story short, we stayed to that mission, Eola, Ko'olelo Hawaii, the Hawaiian language shall live. And whatever it takes to make that happen and grow together with other families, um, our children collectively, um, and have it grow over time. So that was for this year, uh, 40 years ago, 1983. So this is a special year for us. And um, when we look back, we can see that a lot of those original lessons that we learned at that time uh, about ourselves learning our language as second language learners and also as parents raising children and growing them through the language up into high school and even into the university system has really made a big impact on the the um, the life of our language, Kiola o Ka'olelo. Mahalo. Uh, so one of the things I was thinking about while you folks were talking was uh, Larry Kimura. You folks have brought him up a couple times. Uh, we stayed with, with Larry and uh, visit with Larry. And when I first met Larry Kimura, uh, I sent my email. I said, Larry, the, the Tlingit language is in trouble. What do we do? What, what should we do? Tell us what to do. And he wrote back and he said, I don't know. I, I don't want to tell you what to do. And it was very polite, you know, because he didn't know us. And then once we really got to know Larry and, and went through uh, the wonderful program at Kahakaula Okeilikilani, we brought him to Juno. And once we got to know him, we said, Larry, this is what we're going to do. He said, don't do that. It's not going to work. Right? So then, then we sort of got the, the, the nuts and bolts discussion about what it's going to take. But I remember in that meeting, we said, well, we're not ready because we don't have curriculum. And we're not ready because we don't know what a daycare is. And we're not ready because, you know, we always had these reasons. And he said, uh, one of the things that he, he did, I think, that really helped us get going with our language nest was you need to create a home where the language is the prime, with the primary language is your language. That's your primary focus. Don't think about money. Don't think about curriculum. Don't think about all these things because that's just going to distract you from what you really need to do, which is to just get started. So 
how did you folks get started? Well, interesting you bring up Larry's name. So he, he was the president of our Ahapunale. We got together and said, Larry, you got to be the president because he's the older one and our teacher. So yes, but um, <clears throat> part of that thing of back and forth of, no, you can't do this. Oh, yes, you got to do this. It's part of how we grew. Um, and it's good to hear the negative and the positive together because you don't want to just have one, the negative, you're not going to do anything. And if it's all positive, you're going to jump off the cliff. So it's good to have the back and forth. Um, but with um, Puna and Aleo, as Kaunai said, we were speaking Hawaiian to our two children. And if we didn't do something right away, our children would have uh, missed out. And we've had other cases where that happened. So we had to make use of them. They were the only Hawaiian-speaking children on our whole island. Uh, and the Nihau community, which was pretty remote, they didn't have a regular way of transportation from their little island. They only had 200 people there. So that's why they kept the language, because they were so remote. But everybody else was, Hawaii is very heavily populated. And so anyway, uh, we started, and exactly what you said was we decided that uh, it's not about really education. It's about recreating a community, uh, recreating a home. And we had elders, and some of them had raised like 10, 12 kids. So they know how to take care of kids. They know how to do it. And we didn't want just the language. We wanted the way they did things, their values, their way of, of raising children. And um, for me, I'm not Hawaiian at all. And I've been around Hawaiians. I've even learned to speak Hawaiian, but it's really different in a family type of a situation. And Kawanoi had, I mean, she's very Hawaiian upbringing. Her, both her parents could speak Hawaiian, all her aunties, they could all speak Hawaiian, <clears throat> but they didn't. They only, they were used to using Hawaiian with their previous generation that was basically monolingual. But anyway, so we started the schools and we had elders who could speak Hawaiian and they were like two generations above us. And uh, we just kind of followed what they did. And however, they did have academic thoughts about um, how to do things and learning. And, but the main thing was to just be Hawaiian. We wanted them to be Hawaiian. So we had parents bring in uh, fish, you know, and go and get things that they did when they, the elders did, but bring them into them and bring them to the children. And um, also the way they were, you know, disciplined or whatever, how they got, got the children to do things. And it was very, um, I would say, quite different from um, my upbringing. So part of my challenge was, although I could speak the language, I couldn't be the Hawaiian. And we wanted our children to be Hawaiian in that sense. So uh, one big challenge was that uh, it was illegal. <laughs> uh, so that you might think, well, um, that's pretty heavy. Uh, it wasn't totally illegal. Um, they had, they de decided that we were daycare and you had to have licensed teachers unless you were doing certain things. So they said sports, dance, or foreign languages. But they, the state offices decided Hawaiian wasn't foreign. And so therefore, the teachers had to have all these training, um, like in, uh, what do you call, um, a community college, two-year certificate in early education. And the elders who speak Hawaii, spoke Hawaiian, they were the ones who didn't go to school. They were, you know, some of them have gone fifth grade, eighth grade, but they hadn't gone to college, as much less study for early childhood education. So Kaunai had to take off. We were teaching at the university. He had to take off and get some training, and she served as kind of the person. We had two sites, so she'd fly back and forth, and we had people in the state office who were kind of sympathetic to us. Even though we were technically illegal, they didn't really hammer down on us. And then we went to the legislature to change the law. And it took us three years to change the early education or ch child care law. And also, it was illegal completely to use Hawaiian as a medium of education in the schools. Uh, and this went back to 18, the overthrow that Cohen I mentioned. A a 1893, the U.S. Marines came ashore and they overthrew the uh, 
wine kingdom, and then they put in a um, a temporary government, and then they created a rep- they created a republic. They kept trying to get U.S. to annex, um, and there, there's all kind of things going on. But during that period, which was about 19, 1898, Hawaii was annexed. That was kind of a long period, like three from eight is five years. Uh, Hawaiian was all the public schools. Hawaiian used to be an ed- medium of education, and public education was made illegal. And it was copying what was done in the rest of regular United States. And then when Hawaii was annexed, that was made part of the rule and all through the territorial period. So it was during that time that Hawaiian started to disappear. And the elders who spoke Hawaiian were, in general, born between before 1920. And they, they used it as a pure language, what they spoke among themselves, those people, those born after that, there were some who were raised by grandparents who could speak to their grandparents, but they always spoke to their own peers in the local form of English, which people call pidgin in Hawaii or Hawaii Creole English. And so they could speak Hawaiian, but they didn't use it among themselves or with their own children. So we got the ones who were born before that to come in the schools. We're going to take a little break, and we'll come back, and we'll talk about doing the work, what's needed to create change at the local level, at the regional and state level, and at the federal level, and the types of things that you folks have been up to lately and what you might be up to soon. We'll be right back. What's happening, baby? This colonization shit got you down. You gotta get on this decolonization groove, yeah. It's time for language revitalization all across North America. The land of the language coming back into the hands of future generations where it all belongs. Rise up and have your voices be heard. Defeat all the colonial forces that try to hold you down. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. And we're back. Uh, Kawanoi, one of the things I've always been impressed with is when you respond to people about what's needed and and what does it take and and how did you find a way to do it. And I was thinking of this uh, speech I saw by a Maori scholar named Moana Jackson, where he's, he said, one of the most dangerous things of colonization is it got us to stop believing in ourselves. And then we start thinking there needs to be some external solution to some sort of problem. But colonization, when we look at decolonization, it requires your people to really kind of do the impossible. And so for a lot of our people, we might think, well, I don't know if I can do this, or I think I'm going to break the rules if I do this. And so from your perspective, how did you how did you folks find the ability to do that? And how do you think other folks can to, to get themselves to say, we can do this ourselves and we could stop fighting with ourselves and we can overcome this thing so that our language lives? Well, um, that's a big question, Kadeen. That's a big question. Um, but just kind of being 
practical and simple about responding. I think that we need to trust uh, the way that we were raised to trust it. And um, to actually see uh, colonization as kind of a side issue and not pay so much attention to that, even that word, you know, and what that means. Because it will distract you from what you're really supposed to be focusing in on, which is the Ole in our case, we're talking about here, and the Hawaiian culture and the language and how it is um, experienced, lived as a real and valuable part of our past, our present, and, and our future. And so when we work with each other, because people, whenever you have people, you have problems. <laughs> so we want to utilize our traditional ways of ho'oponopono or getting back to what is pono, what is correct, what is right, the right way to be. And so if we look at our own people and our own ways that have been passed on over the years and, uh, and practice those ways in contemporary society today and not think of it as, oh, that's the way it was before or the Hawaiians were, that kind of thinking uh, was pretty much the way for a long, long time. And so in bringing our language and our children together and uh, our, our elders and our children together, our kupuna, uh, the children show us and remind us of where we are and where we're going. It's always an inspiration to, to hear their voices and to see them and to look at them. And so when we um, are faced with problems, and it's going to happen all the time, the ability to remember that, remember and recall as we work together and to uh, acknowledge each other's um, strengths because we can we cannot be doing this alone as individuals. It, I'm just thinking about individuals. It's very foreign. But because individuals are part of a collective or, or an ohana, a family, and families have problems, you know, and, and some of them are pretty um, um, terrible, you know, living together. And so when we understand and um, take care of each other, even in the most uh, dismal times, difficulties, um, we know that living together in peace or keeping uh, maluhia or peace is work. It is not something that just happens organically. It needs attention. It needs aloha and care. And so if we see each other as contributing to the greater good, then we're going to listen and we're going to uh, want to uh, care for each other's strengths and have everybody just kind of understand, yes, I, I am part of us moving forward. Yes, I am different from this other person, but... I can contribute and I will contribute. And if I'm asked to help in a particular way, I want to say, yes, I can help in that way because I understand that I have something that other people do not have, you know, and not to compete. Oh, I know more than you or your grandma was better at mixing poi than, you know, mine was better than yours. You know, don't compete with people that are part of your ohana or part of your group. Uh, that is the only way that we're going to really bring our language back and bring our culture back, bring our ways back, uh, to not make yourself bigger or more important than the collective mission or goal. And so for the Punanaleo Eola Ka'olo Hawaii, it is an intergenerational mindset, an intergenerational mission, and it really requires that we understand each other in that way. And if we do, then we can overcome a lot of things. And for us with the Punanaleo, we've had a lot of um, obstacles and we just see them as just one. And then we move on to the next one and move on to the next one. Uh, using each other's um, strengths in that way. Mahalo. Uh, so we are recording this in Flagstaff, Arizona. We were invited down here for the Stabilizing Indigenous Languages Symposium and a Native American Education Conference at Northern Arizona University. And one of the things that I noticed, and I always notice when I'm 
have the wonderful opportunity to hang out with uh, Kawanoi and Pila is it's work, work all the time. Like, you know, go get, get a good meal, visit with each other, have fun. But then there's a lot of strategy sessions. Like we got to get together and we got to go get this funding. We got to go create this change. We got to go. You know, it's just always trying to figure out what's the next thing. And sometimes it's like you're coming in and everything's on fire or, you know, and so like, where do you start? You know, cause I know in a lot of our time talking, we talk about, you got to create changes at the individual level and families, and you got to create changes within the community and the state, and you got to create changes within the state and the federal government. So these sort of, the, as I think we called it, the micro, the meso, and the macro, which I like to say, the little cup of coffee, the medium cup of coffee, and the big cup of coffee. But like for you and for from your perspective, how do you know when to do the the work at which spot, and how do you shift your focus? Because you guys have an interconnected system, what we call a P20 system, which means preschool all the way to a PhD. You get the whole thing in Hawaiian. But sometimes that means you got to go create structural systemic changes outside of your area. And so how do you do it? Yeah, that was, uh, that's a good question. Uh, but I also want to go back to what Kaunai says about the people and um, it's important to start with a small group of people that are really dedicated rather than their big group. And that's how you show the rest of the people that it can be done. And then they start joining in at different levels and they're doing other initiatives, maybe not the same one you're doing, but it all adds up. You can't think that you're one way is the best way. And especially one way that's happening in a particular place is the best way for everybody in every place, every Place is different in every community and even individuals are different. But to bring people together is the, the trick. And um, <clears throat> for me, because Kaona is so good and she's just, her upbringing, she knows how to be a good Hawaiian person and move forward. But then you got to have a place to be a good Hawaiian person. And um, I think uh, in, in Hawaii, we began with the university system. Uh, again, I said it wasn't creating second language speakers, figuring out how to do that. And uh, the way we figured out to do it was, why don't we speak Hawaiian like they did before in the 1800s in the classrooms? And as I saw in Europe, they're, I mean, Germany, they actually go to school in German. The <laughs> big surprise I discovered. So um, how do we get to do that? And um, you also have to be able to have some kind of a, show the irony or the strangeness of the current situation. So the way where we really began to make a difference was before the Punanaleo happened, and we graduated, and we were working on the radio program, and then we got married, and it's like, uh-oh, we got to make a living. What are we going to do? I started to go do little things, and an opportunity came up at U University of Hawaii at Hilo where the community wanted to have Hawaiian a Hawaiian, B, Hawaiian Studies BA. And uh, there was a lot of pressure, and there was nobody that the university would have. They already had an elder, and Auntie Edith Kanakole, she was really wonderful. She was doing a great job. She, she only went to eighth grade, and she was actually on a tenure track, and she figured that she would be kicked out because she hadn't gone any further. And the university came to talk to us in, in Honolulu, where we lived, and they said, could you come? Um, and we were really leery of it. And um, so we talked to Auntie Edith and said, well, they want us to come. What do you think? And she said, well, we need some teachers. We want to make this program. They want somebody with some sort of degree. So we had MAs at the time. So if we go, let's ask for something. Not just, uh, oh, agree, oh, you can hire me. I'll do your thing. Uh, so the two things that we came up, Auntie Edith and I had a talk and came up with, number one was that the classes would be taught through Hawaiian. And she, she, she believed that too. And then the other one was that we have our own little department uh, because we were in foreign languages and uh, also at UH Manoa, it was like that. And the foreign languages controlled everything and Hawaiians had, all the had lots of students, but they were all... We did like nothing. They had no decision-making. 
And so that what became the thing, and the university accepted it because they were desperate. They're getting all this pressure from the community. So that was the first um, thing we really saw, and we moved into that, and then the Punana Leo, and then you see how come foreign languages can hire any native speaker, but Hawaiian cannot. There's a big irony, and bring that before the legislature, but they don't say yes the very first time you bring it up. We had to go for three years. Same thing, how come Hawaiian's illegal in the schools, and we're have all these Hawaiians singing everything to the tourists, and yet we make it illegal in the schools for their own children. You know, they're giving all this Hawaiian stuff to the outsiders, but nothing for the true people themselves. So once you see the irony, then you got to kind of press the button there and um, don't give up. And and when you have people like Kawanoi and the elders who are all working together, they can go and show up with the elders and the children. It's really hard to oh, we want to get rid of these kids, we want to not mistreat these older people. We're doing volunteering and all that. Uh, again, the volunteer part is you cannot expect the government to do things. If you're going to say, do this for us, you got in trouble because they're going to do it the wrong way. So if they say, open the door, and then you say, we will do this. So you have to sacrifice to show them, and then maybe later on get resources from them, but you have to start from uh, zero and using your own strength. And that's the best strength, that strength of the people. At Kona, I said, the way Hawaiian is raised, doing things together rather than following the rules from the, as your podcast about colonization, it's going to follow the colonizer's way of doing things, even to their own people. <laughs> uh, so... We moved like that, and every time we'd hit some kind of a little uh, bump, then the bump showed us this is the thing that needs to be changed. And uh, so Nala was one of those bumps. Uh, when we went to the state legislature to change Hawaiian, make it legal again, uh, one of the leading legislators said, we're going to pass this law. Um, we're, we're not against Hawaiian or anything, you know, but it's the federal government. They came to Hawaii and they closed down Hawaiian. They, they banned Hawaiian in the schools. It wasn't us. We're the people from here. We're not against it, but the federal government will come in and close us down. So we pass it, but they're going to come in. So I said, uh-oh. <laughs> now we got to go to the federal government. And fortunately, we, were, we had a senator who was supportive, Senator Daniel Inouye, he was Japanese, but his mother had been raised by a Hawaiian family. She was an orphan. And she always told her son, you have to do something back for the Hawaiian people who took care of me when I was a little baby, an orphan baby. So we talked to him, and he said, oh, well, I can help, but we're only one state. There's 50 states. And on top of that, the people, the native people of the other states are really important. You can't just ask me to try and pass a law and go against all these 49 states. So I said, you have to find uh, support with other people. And we didn't know. And Kaunoi um, was going to dance hula in Los Angeles and said, Kaunoi, can't go dance hula. We got plenty of work, just like you said. But she said, I will find the Indians. And she did. She found these people not far from here, the Walpai and like we were just talking to people while Pais at the conference and about the lady who helped us. Her name was Lucille Wadahamaji and Kaunoi and her hula group went and visited and Lucille Wadahamaji shared what they were doing with their bilingual program. We didn't have bilingual in Hawaii for Hawaiians. And, and then she said, okay, there's this conference where a bunch of tribes are getting together and so we gradually met and, and all the older people, just like the Hawaiian elders, they were... Um, working in the schools and in the tribal offices. And they all said, yeah, yeah, we're going to get our kids to call Congress, and we'll call Congress. And uh, everybody worked together. It was really wonderful. Um, kept calling, and they finally passed this bill called the Native American Languages Act. And uh, so I want to recognize Ophelia Cepeda. She at Aldi, um, it's in the University of Arizona, she organized people. We had people from Alaska. Edna McLean was a big pusher there. And so it seemed like people were all 
you know, and that's how we um, seem to get things from the grassroots. Then the trouble is, it's past. Now what do you do? Then you got to figure out how to make use of the law because you may have a law in the books and nobody pays any attention. That's what happened to us with our first um, law. The preschool was okay, but the public schools making Hawaiian okay to be used in a school, the state didn't open up any schools. So we opened up a kindergarten with our preschool. And our preschool charges tuition. So he said, you don't have to pay tuition. So there's only 12 kids, I think not probably not until five or six. And we, we said, we are a public school. We don't charge tuition. And we're doing the state's job. The state is supposed to open up kindergarten, but they haven't done it. So we're doing it. And we're, we're creating a public, we're our public school. And unfortunately, I guess Hilo is kind of far from the center of power, so we weren't closed down. And then the next year, we had a friend from the legislature who worked for the, with the Department of Education, and he took it and moved it. And we got uh, Dorothy Lazor from the Mohawks to come and testify uh, that it would work, and it was passed. But it was like a few weeks before school started, so we had to like, Parents had to go fix up the room. We had to bring on our teacher. We were prepared, though. We were going to do it, not the state. We just needed the door to be open. So we open doors and then go in ourselves and do the work. Atlan Gilchish, Wasa ha e kawu su, ya ha in chasati, kawanoe kapila, ya yegi. Tukach tulsa, a itroe koa haskakwa wus. Uh, we're just so blessed to have Kawanoi and Pila here with us. I'm so thankful for this time we get to spend together. We're going to take a little break and we come back. I'm going to ask them uh, one last question, which is, we're just all big questions here, which is, what do people need so their language can gain strength? So we'll take a little break. We'll be right back. Once I thought about a million birds all around the world sharing their songs, thinking about the ways they have lived and they're gonna live, and this is the way. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. So around the world, we maybe have 7,000 languages. Uh, on North America, there are maybe five, 600 languages. And the way things are going right now, maybe 10 or 20 languages are in a safe place. And so it takes a lot to, to figure out what to do and how to do it. And you might have doubts in your own mind, like, who am I to do this? What am I going to do? I'm just a person. And you also might have 
lateral violence coming through your community where you start doing stuff and someone stands up and says, who are you to do this? And try to kind of push you down a little bit. So I guess as we kind of start to wrap this thing up, um, this work never ends. So it's not like a, your final thought on anything. But we don't know who's out there and who's listening. They might have a thousand speakers and or everybody in their community might speak, but maybe the kids are starting to not speak. Or they might not have anybody who's spoken their language in a hundred years and they're trying to bring it back. So what are your thoughts for the folks who are out there doing this work in the language, trying to keep belief in themselves and each other in order to keep going? Well, um, there are all kinds of ways to answer that that question, but really to see language as uh, what we what we say at Kahakaula, okay, as the binding cord of our culture. It brings us together. So not to really see ourselves as individuals, because when you look at yourself as an individual, then you're alone. You know? So for us it's kako, it's it's the collective, it's the ohana, it's the family, it's working together. And so if you are working together, then you're not alone. And then you will be encouraged and you will encourage. You will be helped and you will provide help to other people. So working together in that way is very important. And, and, and also that for each language family, there are different ways of doing that. And it may be very different. I'm explaining what we do, you know, in Hawaii and how we think about Hawaiian and our families, our family, and our connection to our own Hawaii, our, our land, and, and our tradition and our history, our stories, our mo'olelo. So understanding language as something that is living, it is living, it has to be relevant to our life today. So Pila and I, like we were born in what, 1950 and 1951, you know, so that's a long time ago, you know, that's a long time ago. So when we are working with our people of our age group or the people after our next generation, next generation, and I'm looking at little children, you know, as well. And everybody has their own way of understanding their own generation and understanding their own world. The world we live in today is not the one we were raised in, you know? And so the young people who are here today who are in high school or in elementary or college or married or 40 years old, 50 years old, they understand their own generation in their own way. They have to understand the importance of our Hawaiian language for us in a contemporary way as a living language, dealing with the obstacles, the problems, the issues that we're faced with today, the kind of relationships people have, what is true, what is not true, what is, uh, you know, on the internet, what, what are we using, our phones, how children are being impacted by all of these things. What are the things about our own culture and our language that can help keep our families together, help people through struggles? And that all comes from our own tradition. The answers are there. And not to try and find answers somewhere else. You know, so if we think about our language and our, our, our culture as being dynamic, it moves. It's connected to a past. It's rooted. We're not trying to be something else. And even if times have changed and we have all this technology and a lot of real discouraging things that happen in the world today, um, that we find out about, not just because we're interested, but we're just blasted with everything. We have to have a way to see and understand that in a through a cultural lens, through, through our language and our, our own beliefs as a Hawaiian people. So um, to trust, again, in that history, in our genealogy, in the past, in order to be here in the present, and also know that we are really passing this on to the future generations for our children. Mahalo. Beautiful, wonderful messages from beautiful, wonderful people. Pila? I think you know, Kane, on me. I always try, I'm always learning from her in a way. She's kind of, uh, kind of a strong person. All her aunties and everything were like that too. So I first want to say that <clears throat> what I hear heard Kaunoi saying is 
what you are is Hawaiian already. And she said that at the conference too. Uh, nobody ever told me I was Hawaiian. So I think um, what she's saying is that if you have a group of people who have an identity as an indigenous group, they already have an identity. Maybe the language has been changed, but they're still the people. And then there's still maybe some words, some kind of things. Those words that you have are the most precious words that exist, not some kind of distant thing that some great ancestor had, but what your family passed down to you is the most important thing you want to preserve. You don't want to lose it. So part of our thing has always been to protect that we already have and then build on that. And maybe build over generations, over the time, fix come into the time. And you can also look back and find things that some anthropologist or somebody wrote down or whatever and bring that in. But you're bringing it in as something new because it's new to the contemporary community. So not to get yourself tied to something that somebody wrote about your people 100 years ago. So it's basically what you already are and then build on that. So if you only have one speaker or you only have a few words, you got that, and then you try to maybe find family members, other people. So like I mentioned about Nala, how these, there's so many other people that I didn't name, all helping. So you learn and you take a little something from here or a little something from there from other people, which is the history of Native peoples. They interact with each other. They help each other. It's not um, you're an isolated thing. And then as you're trying to build the language back to strength, and some people have a big lot of stuff, and some people have only a few things, but you're still all building. And then it's not easy, and human beings are um, imperfect. That's why there's so many languages, because over time, things change. And so... Some of the people will criticize you, say, oh, you speak, you don't speak exactly like my grandmother, and they can't speak, They but they heard their grandmother speaking, somehow you don't sound like an old lady or something. Uh, maybe that was an unkind thing to say. But anyway, you'll get criticized, and maybe you, you're not going to be perfect, but you have scars, and those are the scars of the language war, that you brought the language back, you survived, you went through these battles, being mistreated and hurt and everything, and yet you have survived and you're moving forward. Every little inch, every little scar is a sign of pride that you made it. And uh, so I think uh, people shouldn't expect to jump from here down at the very bottom where you started to some huge progress because every little inch is a huge thing to cherish. And uh, so don't give up. Keep on going, everybody. And uh, for us, we had, when we went into school, we say, prairie dog, there's a prairie dog in the book, and the state is requiring us to learn about prairie dogs. We don't have prairies. We don't have prairie dogs. Where can we find? Oh, let's go look and see if there's some native word for the prairie dog instead of calling it a dog that lives in the grass, you know? And so we gained a word from somebody and... We remember that that's those people had that, and that's the real people who know about the prairie dog. That may be a silly example, but keep on going, you you will succeed. My kailoa, atlankunas chishoe, ya Johan, konachoe wuke yukatangi, konachisahan, konachisahan, joya wikisha hakatu uwakut, aka jakutani awe. Kach aya hau lahash, Gwalliwch sateen, Aqa awe kunachwe achidi dishi, Tlitzin achidi ti gandlchish. I'm so thankful for you both. I love you both so much. Uh, the, the joy and the things that you brought into my life, I'm so thankful for personally. And sometimes I feel like it was just a big storm came upon us, and I just washed up on some wonderful, beautiful, but different land, and then I came into your folks' home and you, and you just gave me such wonderful food and wonderful love and advice and aloha. And it helped us as, as Slingit peoples as we came back and we tried to replicate what you folks did. So those of you out there, if you've never been to Hilo to see what's going on, I highly recommend you take a close look at it. 
Look at the programs in Kahaka Ula o Keilikilani. Look at the Ahapunana Leo. Look at Navihi. Find what these things are. If you want to pursue your education and get, get a PhD in revitalizing indigenous and Hawaiian languages, that's something you could do through UH Hulo. I did it. I highly recommend it. Uh, if you just want to make these connections and continue to figure out what to do, uh, reach out, find people. Uh, as as they said, you're not alone and individuals don't create change. It's the movement. The movement creates a change. Gonna cheese. Thanks for listening, folks. Yigo Ayakwan, have strength and courage. We'll catch you later. There is one episode in the books, folks. It's wonderful to be back. It's wonderful to have you listening, tuning in thinking about what we can all be doing individually, collectively, to be the change makers that are needed to create a bright future for indigenous languages in North America. It takes a village. This village is going to be rocking, rocking with indigenous content, thoughts. You know, wherever you're at, I hope that things are looking brighter for you, for your communities, for your people. More lateral kindness, more love, more protection of one another, doing the thing that's needed to create new teachers, create new speakers, protect the speakers you have, take over realms that were taken from your people, take your language to new places, try new things, to exist without having to rely on a language that at its core kind of hates us. But we're strong. We got vision, we got heart, we got energy. Wherever you're at, I believe in you, what you're trying to do. As you sit up at night, maybe, think about the next step. Think about the things you don't have yet. How are you gonna get them? Where are you gonna get them? Who's gonna make them? The collective, the collective, the movement. When we talk about something that's bigger than one person, bigger than a group of people, it becomes an unstoppable force, an impenetrable fort, cut the duke solid. This has been the Tongue Unbroken, a production of iHeart Media Network and the Next Up Initiative. Keep your eye out for new podcasts that are coming out through the Next Up Initiative. Wonderful, brilliant minds through the heart and energy of Joel. Anna, Yesenia, a whole team of people that are looking out for voices that need to be brought to the center. Have strength and courage in all of your work. Catch you next time. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.